This is episode 151 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're finishing Men's Roundup 2015, Standing in the Gap. This is session four from Sunday morning. Good morning. It's, uh, it's been a great pleasure to be with you. It's been my privilege to, to get to know some of you, hear some of your stories. Um, uh, I hope that you have uh, come this weekend and, and found uh, some living water. Um, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Once again, we are looking at verses 9 and 10. There's something here that is, that is key to human existence. What, what Peter is, is talking about in kind of identifying who we are, putting, um, couching our identity um, in, in real reality, in true reality, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Um, the key to understanding really the significance of this is that we not terminate it on ourselves. So it's all well and good to see our identity, but if we do not see where our identity is sourced, that we do, um, if we do not see where we are, who we are in Jesus Christ, we're going to miss out on, on the whole thing. And we're actually going to miss out on Christianity. None of this, none of this identity talk, none of this sort of, um, you know, uh, gospel pick-me-up stuff is, is going to work, is going to be sustainable if it doesn't terminate on the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is precisely where he goes. The glory of Jesus Christ is the antidote to the human predicament. It is the reason, it is the reason for life. It is the reason for existence. You're looking for the meaning of life or the purpose of life. You want a mission statement, a purpose statement, a vision statement. You can do no better than the glory of Jesus Christ and the magnification thereof. Um, I, as I've been sharing, um, spent the last six years in New England. Um, I'm not from there. I didn't grow up there or have any connection there before going to pastor a church there. But it just felt like home when I got there and still feels like home. I moved uh, away, moved to Missouri six months ago, and it felt like leaving home. It's very strange for me having grown up in the South. I um, was born in Texas, grew up in Texas, spent some time in, um, in Tennessee, 12 years in Tennessee before moving to uh, Vermont. And, and just getting there, just, it just felt like home, which is very strange for someone who, who kind of grew up in the Bible Belt, because if you know anything about New England, very unchurched, very similar to the Pacific Northwest, and in fact, um, just in the last few years, um, replaced kind of the Pacific Northwest as the least churched region of the nation. And so if you're... Hello. There I am. If you're looking at those uh, surveys, like, you know, the irreligious, religious, you know, sections of, of the nation, the six New England states are always in the very bottom um, of these surveys. And in fact, the state where I was, Vermont, is, is uh, typically dead last, number 50. So, as I'm sure you can identify living here, the evangelicals in that era, um, you know, feel not just marginalized, but they have this sort of sense of almost like hopelessness, just this sense of despondency that the world around them is getting worse and worse and worse, and they're just wondering, like, you know, is God going to do anything here? Is this just sort of a burnt-over district? Is it just spiritually dead? And so what we would do is sometimes look back, not with a, uh, you know, kind of whitewashed nostalgia, not with a sentimentality, but just to look back to see what God did in history and see if we could find some encouragement there. And I find sort of an odd sort of encouragement in the spiritual descriptions, the historical descriptions of the spiritual state of New England back uh, during the time when we tend to think everything was rosy. So I just want to read something to you. 
Uh, This is a description of Massachusetts. But what a dead and barren time has it now been. Nor a great while with all the churches of the Reformation. The golden showers have been restrained, the influences of the Spirit suspended, and the consequence has been that the gospel has not had any imminent success. Conversions have been rare and dubious. Few sons and daughters have been born to God, and the hearts of Christians not so quickened, warmed, and refreshed under the ordinances as they have been. This has been the sad state of religion among us in this land for many years. Now that sounds like it could have been written last year, but in fact it was written in the early 1700s. I mean, we tend to think back then, I mean, Christianity was somewhat cultural, that everybody was good and, and you know, minded all their religious P's and Q's. But this is the state of New England before, before the great revival, before the great awakenings, before the days of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton and George Whitfield and so on and so forth. So the way that I look at it now, if we are longing for revival... Revival presupposes deadness, does it not? Therefore, if something looks dead, the more dead it looks, the more ripe for revival it is. So now this is what I want to do. I don't believe that we can bring revival in. I don't believe that we can usher in revival. The Holy Spirit moves as he wills. It's like the wind. You don't summon up the Holy Spirit. But I want to look back and see, what did men like Edwards do? What did men like Whitfield do? What was their vision? What were they preaching in such a way to sort of raise the sail for revival? So when the Holy Spirit came, it would sort of catch that sail of the church. Well, I think what we see they did is this. They preached a vision of a very, very big God. Their preaching, their ministering, their teaching, their discipling was saturated with the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Everywhere you look, every corner of their sermons, they are constantly pitching this huge, huge vision of a sovereign, mighty, excellent God. And I think American evangelicalism has lost that. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord himself gives us a vision through the prophet for his, his end goal, his, his end plan for the universe, for the cosmos, and for the earth. And what he says is this, the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. God's vision for the earth is that every nook and cranny would be gleaming with his glory. And so our job, Christian brothers, is to make sure we proclaim the excellencies of Christ that everywhere we go would be wet and gleaming with the glory of Jesus. People are starving for this. They are starving for the glory of God. Why would we give them anything less? This is why Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Let's pray. I want to ask the Father to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this weekend. Thank you for these two beautiful days of exulting in you and your word. And Father, as we um, 
complete our time here together. If it's your will, we ask that your spirit would be here stirring up so much adoration of your son that our souls would be full to brimming with how delicious your grace is and how worthy and wonderful your son is. And it's in his great name that we pray, the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Now, this is why gospel centrality, pastors, ministry leaders especially, pay attention to this. This is why gospel centrality is so crucial to your ministries and teaching. You cannot wear out the gospel precisely because the gospel presents to us, announces to us the glory of Jesus Christ. So to say that the gospel can get old, or that the gospel is just for special occasions, or that the gospel is just for a part of your message, but not to be the center of your message or the center of your ministry, is the same thing as saying that Jesus Christ gets old. That Jesus Christ should be saved for special occasions. That Jesus Christ should be reserved for just a special part of your message and ministry. In the waning days of my ministry, this is after I had resigned in um, Vermont, I had a, uh, a lady come to meet with me and I sincerely believe that she was trying to be encouraging, that she meant this as an encouragement. And I met with her, and, and, and she began to sort of share with me sort of, you know, her reflection on, uh, you know, the past half decade of my ministry there. And, and she was looking beyond to sort of the man that they might bring in to replace me in the future. And she said, Jared, we, we know that the gospel is your thing. And... And she said, you, you, you do it really well. You do the gospel thing really well. But, but sometimes we need to hear other things. And I saw, you know, sort of saw myself in, in that position as needing to listen. So I didn't, I didn't feel like it was my place at that moment to correct her, rebuke her, or anything like that. I just received what she was saying. But my, my heart sunk. Like, in a way, I felt like, I, I have failed you. I've really failed here. Because the gospel is not just like one option. And in fact, in fact, someone who says, yes, that's enough gospel, can we have something else? That um, is evidence they need more gospel. Because those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good in the good news of Jesus Christ, we don't want anything else. Where would we go? Only the gospel has the words of life. No other option is an option. I had the, I printed out this quote from Martin Luther. You probably noticed I quote from Martin Luther a lot. I identify with Martin Luther a lot. I mean, he was such a, an angry cuss. And um, just, I mean, he's so neurotic and just, and just weird. And, and, um, but just loved Jesus and grace so much. Just drinking of grace so much. And so, so much of what he, he taught and wrote about just, resonates with me and I, I printed out this quote in my um, study at the church and I you know tacked it onto the wall next to my desk and essentially he, he said this the uh, the goal of the gospel minister is to know the gospel well okay to know the gospel well and to beat it into the heads of his people continually <laughs> that's what I wanted to do I wanted to know the gospel well and I wanted to beat it into the heads of my people continually you cannot wear it out brothers you cannot for the same reason you cannot wear out jesus christ 
Tim Keller says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's not Christianity 101. He says the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. So we proclaim the excellencies of him. I want to share with you, I think, three reasons why. There are multiple reasons. There are as many reasons as there are excellencies. I just love the fact that Peter says excellencies, plural, not just excellency, but excellencies. But here's just three. The first is this. His excellencies transform us. His excellencies transform us. But first they have to sort of uh, disassemble us, take us apart. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of my favorite sort of gospel wakefulness encounters in the scriptures. You remember this is, you know, famous scene, Isaiah is in the temple, says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And what happened? The first thing that happened was he was completely undone, like spiritually discombobulated. The glory that came in and he, he, he saw who he really was in the light of God's holiness. And the first thing that happens when you see who you are in the light of God's holiness is you feel like you just want to die. Because it illuminates all of those secret places, all of the hidden places inside yourself. That sin, that darkness is, is, is brought to light. And when you're standing right there in the midst of God's holiness and you know you're unclean and you know you're a sinner, we do what Isaiah did, which is to say, woe is me, I am undone. He, he felt blown apart by the glory of Jesus Christ. But then that same glory that took him apart put him back together. Remember the, the angels come and they put the burning coal to his lips and he is atoned for. This is something that happens with the glory of Christ. You cannot face the glory of Christ and walk away unchanged. Over and over and over again, people in the Bible who have this encounter with the living God walk away changed. Like identity change. Like God is constantly changing their name. How do you like that? Forget Abram. Abraham. All right, yes, sir. You're no longer Saul, you're Paul, all right? Jacob, facing, he walked away with a busted hip facing the glory of Jesus Christ. When you have really faced the excellencies of Christ, you do not walk away unchanged. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says it's by beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. If it is true that the glory of Christ is what changes people, why would we save the glory of Christ for special occasions? Pastors, ministry leaders, you want people to be changed. You want transformation. You want them to mature in Christ. You want them to grow. The Bible says that comes by the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul says to Titus, it's, it's, it's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. You want them to be good repenters. You want them to be good behaviors. You want them to get rid of their sin and pursue holiness. It doesn't come by cracking the whip of the law. It comes by holding up the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything that we need is bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Every need we have, every deficiency, every weakness, every death that we face and every death that we are, Jesus Christ is the life that, that shines into us, exalts us properly, satisfies our hunger, meets every need. Earlier this year, I had the great privilege of um, picking up uh, biography of George Whitfield, Anglican preacher who came over from England to the colonies, uh, Thomas Kidd, 
wrote this biography. Fantastic book. I've admired George Whitfield from afar, just living in New England, knowing about you know, you know, his connection with Edwards and some of you know, the uh, uh, Great Awakening and all that sort of thing. But just reading about his life, reading about his ministry, this was a, a, a gospel preacher, a, a, a glory-saturated preacher. They tried to assassinate him multiple times. He would preach to thousands and thousands of people. He was, um, Thomas Kidd says, he's the first British invasion, bigger than the Beatles, before the Beatles were the Beatles. Traveled the colonies. People would come from miles around, camp out overnight just to be close to hear George Whitfield preach. And when he would preach, there would be this great effect. The spirit was so heavy, so, so present in his preaching. People would go to heckle him. Angry people would go to shout at him and curse at him. And there was one instance in particular where just in the opening prayer, a man who went to shout at Whitfield and disrupt his message, during the introductory prayer, the Spirit struck his heart and he got saved and converted. An, an anointed man, George Whitfield. People are, are weeping and, and, and falling out and crying out. So I'm reading through this biography and I'm thinking, I need, I need to read some of Whitfield's sermons. If the, if, if the Spirit has such a profound effect, people are crying out, falling down, charismatic ecstasy just from this man's preaching. I should read these sermons. So I ordered from Crossway this two-volume collection of George Whitfield's sermon. I started reading through them and got about halfway through the first volume. I felt completely fine. It was, you know? All right, yeah, that's good. Until... Until I came to this one sermon called Christ the Best Husband. Now, I remember Kidd in the biography talking a little bit about Christ the Best Husband. The sermon that Whitfield preached called Christ the Best Husband was, was, was aimed particularly, especially at young ladies. And the point of the message was to sort of counter uh, effect or, or to sort of speak to young women who are aspiring to marriage, looking for a good husband. And it had a, a pronounced effect on young women. Everywhere that Whitfield went and preached this message, young ladies were crying out and, and calling out and falling down and, and uh, you know, just erupting in this sort of glory-fueled ecstasy. Adoration of the king. And I'm reading this, this book of Whitfield's sermon and I come to Christ the best husband and I have to tell you, I was in a public place. I'll even tell you what kind of public place I was in. I was at the cigar shop. Can I say that here? No? <laughs> Sorry, scratch that from the record. I was at the coffee shop. No. Surrounded by men. Men being manly. And I began reading Christ the Best Husband and I started weeping. Weeping. The sermon for the women is what did this. So I just want to read you a selection from Christ the Best Husband. Consider... Consider who the Lord Jesus is, whom you are invited to espouse yourselves unto. He is the best husband. There is none comparable to Jesus Christ. Do you desire one that is great? He is the, of the highest dignity. He is the glory of heaven, the darling of eternity, admired by angels, dreaded by devils, and adored by saints. For you to be espoused to so great a king, what honor will you have by this espousal? Do you desire one that is rich? None is comparable to Christ. The fullness of the earth belongs to him. 
If you be a spouse to Christ, you shall share in his unsearchable riches. You shall receive of his fullness, even grace for grace here. And you shall hereafter be admitted to glory and shall live with this Jesus to all eternity. Do you desire one that is wise? There is none comparable to Christ for wisdom. His knowledge is infinite. His wisdom is correspondent there too. And if you are a spouse to Christ, he will guide and counsel you and make you wise unto salvation. Do you desire one that is potent? who may defend you against your enemies and all the insults and reproaches of the Pharisees of this generation, there is none that can equal Christ in power, for the Lord Jesus Christ hath all power. Do you desire one that is good? There is none like unto Christ in this regard. Others may have some goodness, but it is imperfect. Christ's goodness is complete and perfect. He is full of goodness, and in him dwelleth no evil. Do you desire one that is beautiful? His eyes are most sparkling. His looks and glances of love are ravishing. His smiles are most delightful and refreshing unto the soul. Christ is the most lovely person of all others in the world. Do you desire one that can love you? None can love you like Christ. His love, my dear sisters, is incomprehensible. His love passeth all other loves. The love of the Lord Jesus is first without beginning. His love is free without any motive. His love is great without any measure. His love is constant without any change. And his love is everlasting. Everything that we need is bound up in Jesus Christ. He has the living water. He has the glory that we need to be alive and to be full of joy. His excellencies transform us. Secondly, his, his excellencies sustain us. His excellencies sustain us. The law, the law is good because God gives it. It reflects his holiness. The law makes a great train track, but it makes a terrible train. It cannot move you. It cannot empower you. It cannot sustain you. There are some phrases that I find in the scriptures that really frustrated me and confused me until I latched on to where the sustenance comes from in the gospel. A phrase like this from the psalmist, I delight in your law, O Lord. It is sweet to me. Have you read Leviticus lately? <laughs> Do you ever read through Leviticus and just like taste honey in your mouth? Oh, such a delight. Put the latrine however many yards away. You know, it's like, what? How, how, how do you get to that point where the law would, would, which is good, where the law would be sweet? The law will not be sweet to you if you are law-centered. Because one thing you discover, if you make your entire life about making sure you measure up, you run right into a brick wall. Because you cannot measure up. The law that tells us what to do simultaneously reveals that we cannot do it. So how did the psalmist come to say, the law is so sweet. I delight. Obeying God is such a joy. This could only be possible if in some way he felt free from the law. Set free from the law to the law. This is not antinomianism. This is not saying God's law is is negated. This is not to say we're not to obey God. It's just to say, where do we find the power? Where do we find the joy to obey God? 
It comes from knowing that Christ has obeyed on our behalf. We don't have to measure up. Christ has measured up for us. See, moralism does not make anyone feel blessed. It makes them simply feel burdened. And this gospel sets us free from the law, but it sets us free to the law. And there is a difference between obedience as earning, as merit, and obedience as worship, as delight. It's the difference between good works as earning and good works as exaltation. Jesus tells his disciples that their good works should be lights shined on God, meant to illuminate him for the benefit of those in the darkness, showing them the way out. The only way that our good works will work that way, shining the light on God, showing them the way out, the only way is if our good works are acts of worship. If our good works are, are trying to merit favor, we show people the way of condemnation. Do not bring your good works as currency to salvation. They will not be accepted. Good works are acts of worship. They are acts of thankfulness and joy. Good works as merit are, are simply leverage and, and, and bribery, and our God cannot be bribed. Our good works do not magnify the God of free grace if we seek to leverage Him. In fact, they make Him seem like a stingy God, an angry God. But this delight in the law that is sung of by David and the psalmist, it's impossible if the law is our means of right standing with God. And in fact, when you look at that 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a very important passage, not just for verse 18, which tells us about the glory of Christ changing us, but in the whole context, Paul is essentially saying the law is passing away. Because once we get to the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sin to restrain or to reveal. Sin will be finally vanquished, thrown into the pit of hell, and we will be championing our Lamb and celebrating Him and the Gospel forever. This is so important. This is so important. If you are rehearsing heaven in your worship services, for instance, you want to make sure the gospel is at the center of those worship services. Because that's what we will be celebrating for all eternity. Leaders and ministers, you will not cultivate worship through the stirrings up of morality with how-to messages and anxious pleadings for obedience. You will only stir up worship in spirit and truth by holding up Christ that he may be beheld. We can't undersell this, I don't think. This is about worship. This is about affection. It's about seeing Christ as bigger and better than the law, as the fulfillment of the law. And even when we go for doctrine, when we teach good theology, and we need to, we need to make sure that we are aiming our doctrine and our theology at adoration. Adoration of Christ, not of ourselves, that we wouldn't be puffed up by our knowledge. It doesn't mean ignoring theology and doctrine. We need it. We need it. But we need theology and doctrine to fuel our affection for Jesus Christ. If it is not fueling affection for Jesus Christ, it's worthless. John Piper says that intellectual pursuit exists to throw logs into the furnace of our affection for God. I love some of the ways these, these historic Christians, the Reformers and the Puritans and how they helped us see. They were not dumb men. They were not atheological. 
but you see just how, how, how glory-saturated their theology was, how adorational, how doxological. That's a good theological word. I just lost two-thirds of you, but that's okay. How doxological their theology is. This is from St. Augustine's Confessions. He says this, But where in all that long time was my free will? And from what deep sunken hiding place was it suddenly summoned forth in the moment in which I bowed my neck to your easy yoke and my shoulders to your light burden? Christ Jesus, my helper and redeemer. How lovely I suddenly found it to be free from the loveliness of those vanities so that now it was a joy to renounce what I had been so afraid to lose. For you cast them out of me, O true and supreme loveliness. You cast them out of me and took their place in me. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Does that sound like theology to you? It, it is. How about my friend Martin Luther? Oh, I wish to devote my mouth and heart to you. Do not forsake me for a moment, for on my own I would easily wreck it all. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, I thank thee that this which is a necessity of my new life is also its greatest delight. So I do at this hour feed on thee. John Owen on the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, herein would I die, hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and affections to the withering and consumption of all the painted beauties of this world, unto the crucifying all things here below, until they become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way meet for affectionate embraces. These are intelligent, intellectual, theological men, and what they are doing is singing. Our preaching must sing, pastors. There must be a savor of Jesus Christ in our teaching, in our discipleship, in our mentorship. If we're just passing on life skills and life steps and life tips, practical, relevant, applicational things, that's good and fine, but it doesn't sustain people like the glory of Jesus Christ. Because when they hit the dead end, when they've run out of tips and steps, what is it that rescues them from the gutter? Our, our theology, our doctrine, must not simply amuse the brain. It must thrill the heart. Holiness looks like worship. We see the glory of Christ most compellingly, most powerfully, most authoritatively, most inerrantly in His Word. And so we have to keep looking for Christ and His gospel there. Now, I have a theory on this, and a lot of it is drawn from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Where Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word, received the gospel word, in the midst of much affliction. There's something about when you're in the midst of comfort receiving the gospel, where it just sort of can glance off of you. But when the bottom has fallen out, when you're at the end of your rope, and he calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I've alluded to this a few times. I just want to share a little bit of my story. I grew up a very, um, I believe I was a Christian, but I was a very neurotic, unassured, timid, fearful believer. And I liked to kind of, main, I, I sought approval so much. I, I, I wanted so much for someone to tell me I was okay, for, for me to just be approved of. And so I managed all this sort of outside behavior. I was a good religious kid. So in high school, I was the president of the Christian club. 
at church. I was you know, one of the spiritual leaders. I would teach classes even when I was in high school, all this sort of thing. And it all looked good, but inside it was just a mess. A grody, sinful mess. And I remember the very first image of pornography that I saw was in the fifth grade. Classmate brought a penthouse magazine on the bus. This was before the internet. Brought a magazine onto the bus. I have forgotten a lot of pornography since then, but I remember those first images lodged in my brain. And it was a few years before I had access again, but the lust was triggered and the inner secret life was stirring up. And when I finally had the internet in my room and could just, just binge on this filth and depravity, it became harder and harder to kind of maintain that outward appearance. And I took this storm, I took this brokenness, I took, I took this sin, unchecked sin, secret sin, into my marriage. And kept it from my wife. But here's the secret, if you haven't figured this out yet, about, especially about pornography and, and, and lust, sexual temptation. Someone may not know what is going on, but there is no way for you to keep that inside. It will always affect how you relate to people, speak to people, think about people. And I spent several years just crushing my wife's heart over and over and over again. Until one day she finally came to me and said, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be married to you anymore. I don't know who you are, but you're not the man that I married. And she was bitter with me and she was bitter with God because she felt like God had put us together and, and God had betrayed her by having her marry someone like me. And the bottom fell out. And every day I was sort of living with hanging over my head this, this thread of divorce. And my wife's heart was cold to me. And we lived in separate bedrooms. I spent about a year in the guest bedroom. And along with that just came the loss of everything that I held dear, especially my marriage. But everything that I wanted, you know, I was in ministry before. I couldn't figure out why God wasn't letting me get back into ministry. I felt like, you've called me into this. Why won't, well, he was keeping me out because I wasn't qualified. I wanted to write. I couldn't, you know, get any, uh, you know, open doors in terms of publishing. And so I had nothing. I was unemployed. Stay-at-home dad, depression sunk in. I, I had this dark cloud over me. Some days, feel nothing, nothing. One of my girls would get hurt and come crying, and I would just look at them numbly, unmoved. Other days, just a little thing would set me off, and I would spend hours in tears over some little irritation or annoyance. And I'll, I'll tell you, brothers, I have not prayed as um, desperately as I prayed in those days because God was my only hope like I'd put I, he had to be real he had to be real. I was desperate for him and I was thinking constantly depression and 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 all of this brokenness it messes with your brain it messes with your logic and so there were days where I I would think, well, if she believes I've ruined her life and she doesn't love me anymore, I will prove I love her by killing myself. Taking myself out of her life and then she'll know, then she'll know that I love her. And I would spend night after night face down on the floor, nose in the carpet, just wetting the carpet with my tears and, and praying these inarticulate prayers, just like these one-word prayers. A lot of my prayers were just the word please, please. 
or help. About a year of that, going through the scriptures, writing down scripture passages that I felt like spoke to me, and there were, there were a whole lot that I felt like spoke to me, writing them down. Help me, God, help me, God. And one night, one night in that guest bedroom, it's like the Lord ripped the roof off and put his hand down in there. And I just wanted the floor to fall out from under me. His glory was so, so radiant, so burning on me. I knew what a wreck I was. And I just wanted to die. And the Lord picked me up and said to me, I love you and I approve of you. Those were the exact words I needed to hear. The exact words I needed to hear. I approve. Now, I knew he didn't approve of my sin. I know he didn't approve of all the things that I had done wrong. I know he wasn't saying that I had done well, that I had done a good job, that I was a good husband or anything. But I knew he was saying, because of my son who has died for you, taken the wrath that you deserve, I give you his righteousness. I love you and I approve of you. And brothers, it changed everything for me. Now, not my circumstances, right? Like I couldn't get up the next morning and go, good news, honey, the, the Father approves of me. No. <laughs> Didn't work that way. So I spent another year in that guest bedroom and loving my wife, serving my wife, knocking myself out to make sure that no matter how much she said to me, I don't love you, this isn't working, you're not gonna fool me, I'm not buying it again, I've gone too far. I'd get up the next day and serve her again and serve her again and serve her again. And something happened. And there became a turning point. It was a Friday morning. Friday morning, she got up to go to work. And she said to me before she left for work, I want you out of the house. This is after about a year of repentance. I want you out of the house. And I asked if I could have the weekend, if I could have a little bit of time, because I, I, I didn't know where I was going to go, but I was willing to, to do whatever she wanted me to do. She said, all right, you can have the weekend. But this is it. She went to work. I called my father. He had to talk through some of the plans, logistics of where I might go, what I might do. And at lunchtime... She called me, and she said, look, I, I don't want you to leave. I, I don't know what's going on, but I know you're changed. I know that you're different, and I don't know what that means, but I'm willing to figure it out. She, she, at some point between morning and, and, and noon, she'd had her own turnaround. And the way she talks about it now, she looks back and she says, that last ditch, it was like, she knew that I had changed. She really believed that I was different, but it was like her last ditch kind of like, it's too late. And she was just like trying to force the issue, but the Lord broke her between, I mean, she knew that that wasn't gonna work. And God began knitting us back together again. We're in a sweeter place than we have ever been. And in fact, as we look back, right, if we could do it all over again, we would not have done that, right? <laughs> Like, I don't understand people saying, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it the exact same way. You're an idiot. You would not do it the same way. <laughs> I would not have done that. <laughs> but I do look back and see what the Lord was doing with it. If we had not had that experience, we would not find grace so delicious today. I received the word in the midst of much affliction, and my wife did as well. 
And so here's the moral of the story, because some people hear that, they hear that story and they think, oh, if I just trust God and I just pray hard enough and I just read my Bible enough, he'll give me back all these things that I want. And brothers, that doesn't always happen, does it? Some of you can testify to that. Because you've been through this sort of experience and it didn't have the same results as my story did. So here's what I learned. Here's what I learned in that experience. Not if I just trust hard enough and pray enough, I'll get all the things that I want. What I learned is this. If I have Christ, I have everything. And anything else he gives me is just a bonus on top of that. If I only have Jesus, I will be sustained through anything. How could I go through that year of repentance with my wife, the one that I love the most on earth, saying to me constantly, I don't care, I don't care, I don't love you. I will never love you, she'd say. How could I keep getting up, keep serving, keep pouring myself out? It only was through the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. And I know now that if he was all that I had, if God took it all away again tomorrow, if I still had Jesus, I would have everything that I need. That's how you get through life. His glory sustains us. Thirdly, finally, His excellencies empower us. His excellencies empower us. Isn't this what we need? Real power, real strength. I remember counseling a young couple in, in, uh, in my church. They'd come for marriage counseling just been married a few years and and the wife was saying a familiar thing like I'm about done I'm about done so I have them before me and, and essentially what I want to do is sort of hear like what is it that you need what is it that you're asking for so that we can hear it together and kind of workshop this and so I just asked her I was like what would you like him to do and this is what she said this is just an example She said, you know what, he comes home from work, I know that he's tired, I know that he's exhausted from work, but I'm tired and exhausted too from working all day and, and, and watching the kids, and all I would love for him to do is take the kids into the living room and play with them so that I can wash the dishes without the little ones on my legs and distracting me. So like she wasn't saying, I just want to go like take a nap or go eat bonbons or anything like that. She's just saying, I want to wash the dishes undisturbed if, if he could just take the kids in the living room and play so that's what she said i look at him and i say what's your response to that and this is what can you can you believe this this is exactly what he said to me is there a book i can read or something it's like i want to punch him in the face i was like this is what i said you don't your book is sitting next to you She just told you, I heard her. She just said what she wanted you to do. Your problem is not lack of information. Brothers, your problem is not lack of information. Your problem is lack of heart. You know what to do. The real problem is that you just don't want to do it. What gives us that heart? What gives us that power? What gives us the energy? The true love language of humanity is the power of God. The glory of Christ is true power. Only the gospel of Christ gives us the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the most, um, probably clearest places, the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15, the clearest place where we see this gospel-centered thing sort of spelled out for us. 
So Paul says, first of all, that the gospel is of first importance. It's of first importance, the most important thing. But then he sort of spells out what the gospel does. And he says, that word that you received, past tense, is the word in which you stand, present tense, and it's the word by which you are being saved, present future tense. There's perhaps no more clear place in the scriptures that tell us that the gospel is for all of life, that the gospel is not just the power for your justification, but the power for your sanctification, and it's the power for your glorification. The gospel that saved you, that you repented and believed in, whether you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or signed a card or rose your hand or whatever it was, that same gospel is the gospel that sustains you and empowers you this very second. If you obey God out of delight, it's because of the gospel. It is so powerful. You will not outgrow your need for it. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Ephesians 3, 7, Paul says the gospel was given to him by God's power. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, he says the gospel is accompanied with power. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, he says the message of the gospel is the power of God. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, the gospel is going forth into the world. It is bearing fruit and growing like it's this alien force unleashed into the world. Changing things, transforming things, restoring things. And there is Jesus standing in heaven in Revelation saying, behold, I am making all things new. That's the good news. It's so big. It's so big. And this is what people need to behold the glory of Christ. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He, he speaks reality into existence. Let there be light and the sun appears. He makes the earth his footstool. He stirs up oceans with his finger. I just picture Jesus Christ putting his finger into the Pacific Ocean and it sizzles into the air. He holds the universe in his hand, the, the cosmos, the entire universe in the palm of his hand like it's one of those little dainty figurines you see down at the gift shop. What an adorable universe, God says. So cute. That's a big God. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. He is the great I Am, Yahweh, the one true God. My friend Ray Ortland says, we must stare at the glory of God until we see it. What do we see, brothers? We see the radiance of God's glory. See, the only way this will not bowl you over, the only way the glory of God will not bowl you over is if you think that you're hot stuff. And you are not hot stuff. But Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is this who comes from Edom? 
in crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, says he, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Brothers, he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. His excellencies transform us, they sustain us, they empower us. Brothers, let us proclaim the excellencies of him far and wide. Let's pray. Father, always, always a joy to enjoy you with with your family. I love these brothers so much. And you've made us one by your gospel. You've made us one with your son by your gospel. Father, if there is a takeaway, if there is an application point, I pray that you will send these men home with a stubborn fixation on the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not just for the unconverted. It is the skeleton key for all of life. So we thank you for your son, what he has done for us, for the joy For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. So I pray you will make our joy complete in him. And it's in his great name that we pray. Amen.